0: Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel, for it's for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 69, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, September the 17th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the kings of Israel. We get Elijah comes back into view today in Second Kings um, 1, Verses two to seventeen. Then we're also in continuing in the first epistle to the Corinthian church. Chapter three, verses sixteen to twenty-three, and then the gospel is Matthew five, eleven to sixteen. <clears throat> so today we're we're going to look at the the next king of Israel. Again the northern kingdom, and Elijah is the prophet to the northern kingdom. Um, that is, has gone so far astray, and, and now this next king is Ahaziah, and remember he is the son of Jezebel and Ahab, and he's equally weak. So Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Sometimes it's just called Samaria. And and so he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I should recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, It's it because there's no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Well, we've heard this: "You shall surely die." Before we've heard that way back in the beginning in Genesis, right? Because that's exactly what God told uh, Adam, and Eve, or He told Adam, and then Adam told Eve that that if they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. And so that's exactly what Elijah is saying to Ahaziah here. So Elijah went he left after he told the mess he goes to tell the messengers and they returned to the king and he said to them why have you returned and because they weren't gone long enough <laughs> and they said to him there came a man to meet us and he said to us go back to the king who sent you and say to him thus says the lord it's because there's is it because there's no god in israel that you're sending to inquire abaels above the god of Ekron? therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up but you shall surely die so the good news is that, that they were faithful in the way that they repeated this, they got it word for word exactly right. He said to them, "What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things?" They answered, "He wore a garment of hair and with a belt of leather about his waist." And he said, "It's Elijah the Tishbite." Sounds a lot like John the Baptist, right? Um, it was the 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 image that John portrayed would have been exactly the the physical image of. Elijah. And he was doing the same thing. He was calling the people of God to repent and to turn from their sins just exactly the way that Elijah was. And so then the king sent to him, to Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says come down. And then Elijah answered the captain of the 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. He's done that before, remember, up on Mount Carmel. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And the king sent another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent a captain of a third fifty with his fifty. <clears throat> and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. In other words, I'm not giving you an order. I'm coming to ask you something. Something. Because I know your power. I know what you've done. And then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord. He repeats exactly the same thing. Because you sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you will surely die. And he did according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. And then Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. So the, the kingdom is briefly united here. Ahaziah had no son, and so Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, becomes king in Israel after the death of Ahaziah. However, <laughs> that's not going to last, so anyway, what we have here is that is Elijah is, is calling the king in his um, what he believes to be his power, continues to send his commanders of 50 men out to basically threaten Elijah and command him to come and give a performance, in spite of the fact that, that he sent these messengers out to go somewhere else to find a God who will give him a word. And so he, he has abandoned the God of Israel. And so what, what's happening is, though, that he is seeing that there is indeed a God in Israel, a God who is able, through his prophet Elijah, to destroy his commanders and their 50 men on two different occasions. And now here he finds out that, yes, there's a God in Israel, and, and he cares deeply about his people. And so when the leader seeks after another God— then that leader has to go because he's seeking the knowledge of good and evil from another source other than God, because that's what he's asking here. What's going to happen here? And instead of inquiring of the Lord, he, he inquires after the knowledge of good and evil from some other source. And so he dies. <clears throat> and. In the gospel lesson, remember yesterday we we, uh, we were in the Beatitudes, and this is the final of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's not typically my response. <laughs> I'll just be perfectly honest with you. I don't consider myself blessed, and I don't rejoice. When people revile me and persecute me and utter all kinds of evil against me falsely on his account, my first reaction is not to rejoice and be glad. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's either to defend myself or to come after you hammer and tongs. And and I need to hear this. I need constantly to hear this. I've had too many battles that I've fought that that ultimately I should have been rejoicing and been glad— about what was said, rather than responding to it. That would have been a far better way for me to deal with those issues. But uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm confessing here before you today, and hopefully that that repentance that I that I feel in my heart right now will be will be sufficient the next time this happens. that, that I deal with it appropriately. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that's the big thing that's true, I think, too often in the church today. And that is, is that the church isn't salty enough. We've we lost our savor. We We've lost our ability because we've become so much like the world that we no longer— um, appear distinct from the world in the same way that Jesus was distinct from the world. He he challenged all presumptions people had that were based on worldly assumptions. He he, he actually even at the cross. Remember, the, there's a sign that Pilate had put over his head that said, "The King of the Jews," and and he he, he was. You know, it, it's it, it, the worldly wisdom says that in a mocking way. But the reality is this one who's dying on the cross is truly the king, not just of the Jews, but of all creation. He is God himself. And we've got to have those kinds of kingdom eyes to see beyond. And, and we need that in, in multiple ways, not the least of which is when we when we see other people, we need to, to have the eyes that, that C.S. Lewis talked about having that, that there's no such thing as a mere mortal that we were created for immortality. We were created for so much more. And so often we can misjudge other people, and, and we can fail to see the inherent worth of that person as being um, great simply because they're a child of God. They were created in His image. And so we need to have better kingdom eyes to see these things, and we need to um, to then live that out in such a way that, that the world sees, wait a minute, these people are exalting people that we look down on and scorn, and, and instead, they're they're celebrated, and there's somebody, and they're treated like somebody, and, and there's so many different ways that we need to bring salt to the earth, and we need to be those people who, who, whose lives bespeak a different kingdom and bespeak a better way of living. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So James's epistle, when he talks about good works, and and if you show me your faith and I'll show you my works, um, it, Jesus talks about this again and again and again. He expects us to do works. Paul did, too. Paul expected us to do works, that that what we do would be an outworking of the faith that we have in us, the faith that says we're not living for this world, we're living for another world. And our life in this world points to the reality of that other world and another and a better way of living and being in the world we live in. And and Paul took more heat for that than, than any man that you'll ever hear about. And it's because he chose to live for the kingdom of God and not to, to uh, judge people and, and evaluate people based on worldly standards. And so here he says to to all the Corinthian church, don't you know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? And that goes back to the quote that I was given before, the, the statement I made before about C.S. Lewis's quote that you've never met a mere mortal. These... If God's Spirit dwells in a person, then that person is great in the eyes of God. And and he says, you've got to understand that about yourselves first. You have to understand that that if God has put his Spirit in you, then you're to be a different kind of creation. Just as at, at creation, he breathed into the man that he created and made him a different order of creation from everything that had gone before. He says, when, when God put his Spirit in you through your confession in Jesus Christ, when he put your, his Spirit in you now, you're a different order of creation from other human beings who don't have the Spirit of God. Respect yourself. And then the corollary to that would be, respect greatly those in whom God has placed his Spirit. How do we treat one another? How do we respond to one another? How do we love one another? Are we respecting the Spirit of God on that person and in that person? We've, not only are you God's temple, so is the other. So is the brother and the sister. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple goes on to say, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And that's exactly what the Beatitudes are, is to say, you, you, the, the things that I'm saying to you, you're looking at me and you're, you're kind of repelled by the things that I'm saying are blessed. Meekness? Really? Mourning? Poor in spirit? Even peacemakers sometimes are looked down on. Those who are merciful sometimes are looked at as weak. And Paul says, if you look at things that way, if you don't understand through kingdom eyes that the world is going to be upside down, then, then you're deceived, he says. You're, you're dealing in worldly wisdom, not king, or kingdom of heaven wisdom. He says, the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. And remember, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others would come, and, and they would come and, and question Jesus, and Jesus turned it on, on their heads. That's the kind of wisdom Paul's talking about. If you're still thinking through the eyes of the world And if you're still seeking for position and power and all that kind of stuff, if you're still trying to become wealthy and have it all, hey, just go back and read Ecclesiastes because that guy did. And what he says at the end is none of that was worth having because none of it lasts. And so Paul's saying, stop trying to be like the world and stop choosing to desire the things that the rest of the world desires. There needs to be a difference between you and the rest of the world. And Paul was the master of that. He was the guy who laid down everything that he had, all that he had achieved because of Jesus. And then he became a joke in many people's eyes. He says, I don't care. I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to please God. That's it. That's all I want. I tried that other thing. I had that other thing. And what I found was everything I learned was nothing but filthy rags, And at one point he says, it's dung in my eyes. And so Paul says, you've got to have that same mind. Those things are futile, he says. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If we could have the same mind as Paul, if we could do that, if we could seek only the approval of the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's what described most Christians, we would turn the world upside down. The world would hate us, but it would be clear what it was hating, that it was rejecting Jesus rather than us. Are we making that choice clear? (laughs)